Welcome to episode 21 of the Swift Teacher Podcast. One lesson at a time towards... Swift World Domination. Of a very special episode today, joining us are at least three experts in the area of education. They are Dr. Chris Penny, Dr. Heather Sugar, and Dr. Laquana Cook, all from Westchester University. And they did an interesting study that uh, they're going to share us their results with us today. Dr. Chris Penny is a professor and assistant dean in the College of Education and Social Work at Westchester University of Pennsylvania and a graduate of Penn State University. In 2011, he won the Lindback Distinguished Teaching Award for Excellence in the Classroom. In 2007, Dr. Penny became an Apple Distinguished Educator and a Google Certified Teacher in 2009. His efforts in teaching and research have the focus of technology integration and education. He has published an edited book titled Technology Leadership in Teaching Education, Integrated Solutions and Experiences. He has published articles on reading on electronic devices, e-mentoring, 24-7 laptop access for teacher candidates, and digital portfolios. Mobile Pedagogy and Perspectives on Teaching and Learning is the title of the book, which was published in 2013. His most recent research revolves around the topics of learning spaces and coding for everyone, which is near and dear to my heart. Dr. Laquana Cook is a professor of digital rhetoric in the English Department at Westchester University of Pennsylvania. Her research sits at the intersections of critical pedagogy, media criticism, and the performative view of design practices. Dr. Cook's research and teaching revolves around concepts of students, users, players, socio-technical and socio-cultural experiences in procedural spaces like video games. Dr. Heather Sugar graduated from the University of Maryland College Park with degrees in curriculum and instruction. Before joining the faculty at Westchester University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Sugar start, taught second grade in the Montgomery County Public School System in Maryland. Her current research interests center on the role of mobile technologies, tablets and wearables, in reading instruction, with a particular focus on students' comprehension when reading from these devices. Her work has been presented widely and published in journals such as The Reading Teacher, The Journal of Technology and Teaching and Learning. In addition, Dr. Sugar's research has been featured by media outlets such as the New York Times, NPR, Education Week, NBC News, Real Simple Magazine, and Men Fitness. Also, part of the group is Dr. Jordan Sugar. He is an associate professor of English at Westchester University of Pennsylvania, teaches courses in literature, writing, and educational technology. His research interests include the literacy associated with mobile pedagogies and emerging technologies, digital storytelling, and active learning spaces. He has published articles in journals such as The Reading Teacher and The California Reader, The Journal of Technology and Teaching and Learning, and also edited Mobile Pedagogy and Perspectives on Teaching and Learning. Additionally, he has presented his work at a variety of local, state, national, and international conferences like the National Council of Teachers of English, the International Literacy Association, and the American Educational Research Association. His research has also been featured in the New York Times, USA Today, CNN, Real Simple Magazine, and Education Week. In 2013, Dr. Sugar was also named an Apple Distinguished Educator. So we have a real all-star panel here today joining us. So let's start with uh, the dean, Dr. Penny. Why don't you tell us a little more about what you do at Westchester University? Hey, Brian. 
Thank you. What I do, I, I'd start by saying, first and foremost, I'm a parent. I think that informs everything I do uh, at Westchester University. Uh, I'm in the teacher education area, and I've been doing that now for 16 years at Westchester, and have a, a new role within the college as an assistant dean, working with our, uh, our, our team on rolling out an a one-to-one with mobile devices, uh, but that also still affords me an opportunity to be teaching educational technology classes at the graduate and undergraduate level. Dr. Sugar, can you share a little bit about what you do at Westchester? Sure, I'm a literacy professor, and right now I am working um, quite a bit with our doctoral program, which is in um, policy planning and administration. And Dr. Cook? Could you also share a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, I'm actually in the English department. I teach a number of writing courses, but I also sit on the board for the new Digital Humanities minor, as well as the new Game Design and Development Certificate program we're hoping to roll out as a minor in the um, following in next year. Oh, that sounds neat. I have a lot of students that come to my school to learn a little bit about game design and everything, they would probably find that very interesting. I'll have to share that information with them. All right, uh, Dr. Jordan Sugar, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little about what you do at Westchester University? I'm an English professor up there. I teach mostly um, writing and uh, general education courses. I teach a little bit of children's lit um, and always looking for ways to infuse technology into my uh, classrooms with uh, projects, reflections, multimodal uh, sorts of ways that students can answer uh, the questions uh, that we present to them. So, and then we do a lot of research as well with the College of Education across our, our Quovel. Yeah, I do a little bit of everything up there. So Dr. Penny, tell us a little bit about your teacher preparation program and coding, because where this all started from and where I got this idea that I wanted to have you, your group come on was you were on the Wired Educator podcast, episode 70, talking about what your group had learned from student teacher candidates going out into the field and working with coding with students. Right. So love, love Kelly Croy, love his podcast and uh, invited me on to talk about what we're doing at Westchester. We, we graduate a lot of teachers, Brian, like 800 teachers a year uh, in Pennsylvania, which is the most in, in, in Pennsylvania. And we've been interested in how do we best prepare our teachers for these classrooms of the future, right? So how is teaching and learning going to look when uh, our teacher candidates graduate? So looking ahead and all this excitement around coding we wanted to add computational thinking to the curriculum somewhere so i teach a a one credit ed tech standalone course for our undergraduate teachers and in that class we have a a unit on computational thinking and coding so we we added this coding with swift playgrounds uh, to our to our teacher preparation program through that class Dr. Sugar or Dr. Cook, do you have anything to add? I came on board pretty much bringing in the the idea of coding, coding as literacy, because most of my research in particular look at how game design can be used as a pedagogical framework. So I was really happy to come on board with this particular research, um, bringing in uh, the theoretical framework of coding, computational thinking, and how it is intrinsic to a lot of of our reading and decoding practices we do on an everyday basis. So how can we sort of tie that into 
um, teacher preparation. It was just right for my sort of like discipline and where I hail from. I brought with me the literacy piece. So as someone who looks at how students learn how to read, I look at coding as a literacy and a literacy that they're going to need to teach um, sometime soon. So for me, my interest in this project is trying to map some of what we're doing with coding to um, literacy practices that our students and our teachers already have and know. We'll have to come back to that point uh, later because I, I just I, in my, the last episode I interviewed Larry Reef and we had a really interesting discussion about coding and the software development process and the writing process, the parallels between them. But I would, what I'd like to do is talk about your study. So you recently did a study looking at coding and literacy. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. And what was the purpose of the study? Well, we, we know all of these tech companies are really uh, promoting this idea of, you know, everyone can code. And as a team, we really asked the question, you know, can everyone code? If, you know, we're looking at teacher education, teacher preparation, what factors are associated with, you know, these teacher candidates' successes in learning to code? So can they learn to code and then can they teach coding? We also wanted to see um, how students may have um, certain characteristics that might lend themselves to have be um, more easily learn how to code. So things like what kind of background knowledge do they already have about coding? What kind of interests they have in coding? Things like their math and literacy and writing aptitudes. And to see if any of those um, had a, a effect on their ability to code, as well as were, once they learned how to code within something like Swift Playgrounds, were they going to be able to transfer it to another task um, outside of Swift Playgrounds? So for the purpose of your study, did it focus just on the coding within the Swift Playgrounds app? Am I correct in that assumption? No, it wasn't just that, no. So the initial part of the study looked at how students learn to code within the Swift Playgrounds app, but then we asked them to transfer what they had learned to another task outside of the app. So I, I can back up a little uh, a little bit here, Brian, and give you a little more uh, context here. So we did a we did a background survey. So initially we had 67 students uh, as part of this study, all teacher candidates at, at Westchester University. We did a background knowledge survey. We did an interest survey. We thought that was important to look at. And then we walked them through Swift Playgrounds and we did the, the Learn to Code 1. And within Learn to Code 1, we did units 1 through 3. And then uh, had them record, had the teacher candidates record uh, the, the coding task at the end of unit 3. And they turned that into us using our uh, course management system. And then, as Heather was alluding to, we also had them do a coding task outside of Swift Playgrounds. And that looked like a, uh, the uh, floor plan of where the, the, the class, the, the tech class, where, where it actually takes place. And we had them move our fictional character Byte outside of the classroom and go and collect gems from these, these different classrooms in the building. So we wanted to get them outside of Swift Playgrounds to see if... You know, did they, as they were walking walking through the the puzzles and the tasks inside of Swift Playgrounds, did that transfer then outside of Swift Playgrounds, and could they complete a task that wasn't inside of this virtual world? So that's a a little bit more background in the the study. So now that we know the purpose of the study, why did you choose Swift Playgrounds for your study, and why 
Why that as your coding environment? We found that there was a ton of uh, support available to us uh, through through Apple. There's iTunes U courses. There's multi-touch books. There's the Apple Teacher badging program. Uh, and so we felt like if teachers are going to be successful, there was a lot of really great accessible content that was going to help them uh, learn Swift, as well as even help students uh, learn Swift as well. We're also, uh, a lot of the research that we've done at Westchester University has really focused on mobility and mobile pedagogy. Uh, some of the early research we did was with uh, reading and, and uh, e-reading and, and e-books. And more and more uh, students and more and more people are learning on the go with mobile devices. Um, and it just seemed like the, the best environment to kind of authentically uh, study this phenomenon. All right. So Apple Swift Playgrounds is sort of like this, what I would call this hybrid game and simulation environment. And what sort of separates it from other coding environments, such as Scratch, um, Snap, App Inventor, et cetera, three essential things, right? So we have with Swift Playground, learning is contextually situated, right? I mean, it is a playground. So it's this sort of low stakes environment for, for learning. And you gain this empathy for the cute little avatar Byte who affirms your success and essentially encourages even your non-success. So there's this sort of negation of failure in this beautiful utopian space where we're learning to code. And then the second thing is the pedagogy. So after you do your scripting or what we call coding on the left, it's this instantaneous simulation of your code on the right. And we talked about the sort of IDE us with playgrounds. So you have this side-by-side -side view of your coding in somewhat of real time. Um, the third thing is obvious, where the code is simple. Um, what you are witnessing here is a function, a procedure that is developed by you, the coder, and enacted by um, Byte, the little character. Um, so although coding is simple, um, the programming language is very robust. And I like to think of how significant this environment is to uh, providing exponential learning and coding so you can actually move beyond the playground into a more real quote unquote space of coding. So you can build uh, apps through Xcode and you're, you're essentially learning the fundamentals of the scripting of Xcode. So there's no sort of glass ceiling to learning and coding because you can move on um, to developing and coding different apps as well in Xcode. So I like what you have to say, Dr. Cook, about that. Um, one of my favorite quotes from all the episodes was from an episode five, Stacey Snagowski, who works for Mobile Makers in Chicago. She talks about the difference in what she feels in the Swift Playgrounds app and, and the other block-based languages, Scratch and all those others. She said, well, it's like baking in an easy bake oven. <laughs> you know, those block-based ones, which, you know, they're important. And, and right, Apple right. offers some of that for K2 with uh, Tinker and CodeSpark Academy where it's really appropriate. But once you get past that, is it really appropriate to be using those? You know, she she said, right. when you bake in an easy bake oven, is it really a cake that you're baking? I mean, it's kind of like a cake that you're baking, but I don't know if that's really baking. And I, yeah, yeah. so I, I see that as the advantage of, of a Swift playground. So I... I, I totally hear what you're saying, and I, I'm glad you guys chose that I, I, for all the reasons that you stated. Okay, so now we know the premise of your study. What did you find? What did the data say? 
Well, we used something called a discriminant linear analysis, and we were looking for how well certain, for lack of better words, factors predict um, how our pre-service teachers were going, how successful they were going to be in both learning how to code and then for transferring it, um, what they had learned to another task. And we found that um, the student's ability to complete the first three units in SWIFT Playgrounds was um, highly associated with their ability to, um, with their um, SAT verbal math and writing scores. And this was a little bit worrisome for us because we are, um, if you're familiar with SWIFT Playgrounds, you know that um, units one through three, we only get through functions and loops. We're not getting into any real significant coding. Um, and our students were really struggling, some of them, with um, completing this task. And it was very highly linked to, like we said, their verbal, their math, and their writing ability. In terms of our students' um, background knowledge, they didn't really have much background knowledge on coding. It was all about the same. They could identify a few languages. They could um, identify certain terms, like what something like decomposition would mean um, within coding. Um, so that didn't seem to be um, an indicator of whether they were going to be um, successful in the task or not. But one of the things that for us that was most interesting was that the students really had difficulty transferring the task to something else. Although 77% of pre-service teachers were able to complete um, the end of the unit within SWIFT, we thought that that was a pretty high amount of students. 77% after working for a week with units one through three were able to complete um, the unit. And with that, 54% of those students used functions when they were writing their code, but only 38% of the students used loops when they were writing that code. One piece that was interesting was that of the 54% of students who used functions at the end of the unit um, assessment, all of them were able to successfully complete um, the coding task. But that changed quite a bit when we asked them to transfer to another um, the other task we previously mentioned. So once we took this out of SWIFT Playgrounds and had them complete a task in a different environment, um, we had only 23% of the students were able to complete that task. And of those students, 62% um, of them still use the functions and 23% of them use loops. But unlike the first task where the students who use the functions were all able to complete the task, in the transfer task only 37% of the students who use functions were able to complete the task. But it was an interesting flip because of the 23% of the students who used loops, all of them were able to complete the transfer task. So that switched a little bit where um, functions were predicting that they were going to be able to complete the task in the first task, but once they moved it outside of Swift Playgrounds, loops really became um, what was um, predicting whether they were going to finish the task. Were you looking at a specific kind of loop, like for loops or while loops? Because I, I know that a, a while loop is much... We only got through four okay. loops. <laughs> okay. What I found with my students is if they can use and understand the logic of a while loop, they're they're pretty decent at... Uh... Yeah. at coding and computer science concept. They were, we only got through the first three units, and like we said, they really had difficulty even with those first, uh, 
the first three tasks within unit one. So it's, um, I think that that's something we need to think about, like how are we going to support them? Because that's the real basics. I mean, they really can't code anything with just functions and loops, but they, you know, were already becoming overwhelmed with that, that task in and of itself. So it sounds like you at the university level and uh, me as a veteran teacher, we have some work ahead of us to support pre-service and early service teachers to get them up to speed. Absolutely. What do you ascribe that to? Do you have any thoughts on why that is or how we could approve that? I think part of it, of, of the students who use functions in their task, um, at least on the first task within SWIFT Playgrounds, um, 100%, so 54% of students were able to use functions, but 100% of those students who use functions were able to complete the task. And I think we look at this as if they're not using some of the uh, some of these shortcuts to getting their code across and they're trying to do everything the long way, they're going to make more mistakes. And so they're going to be more likely to um, make a mistake. Another piece of it was that within Swift Playgrounds, you have the ability to basically check your code. And within our um, transfer task, they didn't have the ability to check their code. So doing that mentally um, may have been a bit difficult for them. Yeah, that's interesting because I see that my students, um, my junior 11th graders, do Swift Playgrounds in the first semester and then intro into app development with Swift. And the code completion bar in the Swift Playgrounds app is very similar to autocomplete in Xcode. So my students found that using that was is beneficial to them and they're able to complete their work. I wonder if that would have been helpful to get that autocomplete in there in, in their task, which would have been hard to do unless they yeah. were working on a Mac. I think that's a I think that's a good good point, Brian. Yeah, they, they didn't have the autocomplete, so they had to hand code it. They had to type out all of the code. And uh, they were doing you know, they were doing this brute force, right, approach where they were they weren't using functions, they weren't using loops and they were writing individual lines of code over and over and over again. And they, they struggled. Uh, they struggled to do that and then uh, to go back and to check their work because, as Heather said, they weren't able to run the code. They had to go back and reread it line by line, and that was a it was a, a long and slow process for many of them. Although we're not like critically looking at sort of the GUI of Swift Playgrounds, and I think the point that Heather and and Chris brought up is important when we think about the transferring activity and how the activity is situated within a certain context. So with Swift Playground, like you were saying, um, you know, we have this sort of like synchronous, where we can see the code uh, play out. Um, also, it's sort of like the pseudo IDE where we can see the syntax and errors. And that's pretty typical of most of the user interfaces for coding that's out there. Um, and so transfer, and this is more thinking about the future of this research and how we can be cognizant of how the activity is situated within this digital space and then this more material space. So um, I hope to, to add a bit more in terms of how we think about situating this activity and the transferring um, um, activity as well. Were you referring to um, Swift Playgrounds as a pseudo IDE? Yes, yeah, I, you know, I look at, you know, if we think about Code Academy and all of these other, um, you know, coding movements and initiatives that are happening, Hour of Code, et cetera, where you have this space where you can look, um, obviously, at how your, your code plays out, 
um, to the right, but then to the left, you can see where, you know, if there's an error, you have this sort of checks and balances as well to the left, right? Um, sometimes in other spaces, um, and I can't think of the IDE, but like you would see the code, um, the syntax is red, which means there's an error in the code, right? And correct me if I'm wrong, but Swift doesn't do like red if, it's, if there's an error, right? No. They do a red – so Apple compilers – because Swift, the Swift Playgrounds app actually is an IDE. Mm-hmm. It, it'll compile Swift code, and that's what it's doing in the playground. Uh, they get, You get a red dot. Which you do get a red we, dot, yeah. The developers, we call that blood on the – Yeah, so that's, a, that's another thing we have to consider, right? Um, that's another way in which the learner would know whether or not the code will, will run. It's because you have – what you call it as the yeah the red dot yeah so that's just an error warning because that, that yeah it's consistent with what happens in xcode the full ide but yeah i remember that it was uh it would show that it's an error as you're as you're putting if, as you're um doing your line of code and then obviously if you play it you want to see another sort of second tier of errors hence it's not going to run properly right okay. and that's very that's unique to swift and uh, Swift Playgrounds, because other languages like Python, you have to wait till you actually run the code run at the code. end to actually get it to compile mm -hmm. before you see any errors. So you could be working in it for quite a long time before you even know you have an error. Right, right. So what finding or what part of your data was most surprising to your group? Well, I think, I think for me, Brian, it was probably this idea of interest. I think uh, the having... I've heard this repeated many, many times that the people get into coding and if they had an interest or background in music or and or art, that they were more successful in coding. And we didn't see that in this study. And that was, that was surprising to me. I was also surprised at um, how closely linked students' ability to complete these tasks were tied to their verbal and writing abilities. I, we always hear, at least here at the university, when we talk about coding, it's housed within computer science. And um, that is not something, we look at it like a literacy, but not in the same way we teach literacy in an education department. And as I've been working through this and looking at the students' responses, you can really see how it's linked to comprehension and decoding um, and even fluency in terms of how they're able to produce this co these codes. And I think that, you know, the, the conversation, Brian, you had in your last episode with Larry Reef, I mean, that doesn't surprise me and probably doesn't surprise anybody on our team that a language arts teacher has within, you know, less than a year taught himself how to code and is now uh, teaching coding classes. So uh, I think before this study, I would have been uh, maybe more surprised by that and would have thought it would be somebody coming out of math science or computer science. But now to hear, you know, somebody who's a, a, a trained language arts teacher uh, getting into coding and, and having a lot of success and a lot of fun doing that isn't, isn't really that surprising. Yes, I, I would have thought some years ago as a, as a recovering math teacher, uh, former math teacher, I would have thought, oh, this is definitely people or math science. And that's really, from what I've seen, it's not the case. You know, people with a good language background 
they're the ones who pick it up. Or, And I have seen the examples of artists, the uh, two founders of Jamf Software, which is the mobile device management software my district uses, they were both music people from the University of Wisconsin, or one of the branches. And Apple has reported that many of their, some of their best engineers were former artists and musicians. As a matter of fact, the uh, lead of the Swift Playgrounds app team started as a music major and then Swift, then, well, Swift, then switched to computer science for some reasons, money, I think, being one of them. And Larry brought that up. We had a nice discussion about how when you develop software, is really just like writing, whether it's a book or whatever, you have your rough draft, which we call proof of concept in when you develop software, just to make sure even outlining or doing a, a mind map being equivalent to that proof of concept where you just try and put some thoughts down and see if you can rough draft and step out some code to get it to something similar to work. And then you have alpha software, which only a few people use, and that could be your rough draft. And then you have your beta software, and that could be, you know, I'm sorry, I taught math, whatever the next step is in the writing process. And eventually you work your way all the way up to gold master software or release software, which would be your finished product when you're writing. And it sounds to me like that your study found that those students with those really strong verbal skills writing skills were some of the best there did the best in the tasks yeah yes. it's, it's true right so it's it's those verbal sat schools where where we saw you know those are the students that had the most success which which brings up you know questions of then you know if we're going to be teaching coding across the curriculum in k-12 schools where does coding sit right is it in math classes is it in science and which are these teachers that we look to, to be the ones who will lead these coding initiatives. And maybe it should be our English teachers, our language arts, arts teachers that are teaching coding as a literacy. So what implications do you see for your research in the future now that you've had this first round of research completed? I think like most good research projects, you really want to uh, replicate it um, and you want to do it on a larger uh, scale. So some of the questions that we've asked before, we'd like to maybe look at again. Somebody had actually mentioned to us as well um, about looking at uh, the way, uh, we had asked a question about art and music, and someone had said, you should also ask a, an inventory question about uh, people that do Sudoku and people that do uh, word puzzles and crossword puzzles. Is that maybe a factor? So I think that's something interesting that we'd like to look at as well. We also um, are trying to partner with somebody um, uh, to kind of do a little bit more experimental uh, research, treatment research, where we can try different methods for teaching SWIFT and, and working with um, computational thinking and computer science and uh, to see how that might uh, work out. Um, so really, ideally, I think it's finding a good way to teach uh, teachers how to uh, teach teach SWIFT Playgrounds. And eventually, I think we'd even really like to, to develop like a full-on curriculum as a possibility as well. This is, I mean, this is really awesome research we're doing, but it's really scratching the surface of different areas we can go with this. And especially when we think about the implications of the research and where we could go. So um, one way is obviously if we're talking about teaching teachers, there's this pedagogical element, right? How we can think about in this sort of meta framework, how to situate swift playgrounds within a situated learning um, instance or environment. 
So we can look at the pedagogical impl implications of that, of how we use the repertoire of tools that are part of the ecology of Swift Playgrounds as a way to gauge in whether um, the efficacy is there and how we're using them as instructors that are teaching teachers. That's one route. So and then another route is more of this interdisciplinary approach to how we are uh, conceptualizing Swift Playgrounds within um, different disciplines, especially when we think about the computer science for all sort of a movement that's happening, how, how this can be used as a tool across the curriculum, especially in um, English literacy and arts um, spaces. And even in my own classroom for my games design and development class in Jordan, I sent you an email like, hey, how can I get my hand on an iPad to use Swift Playground to provide my students who are not in tune to computational thinking and different coding uh, vernacular and logic, but they're going to need it for the game design class later on when we use a development software, but they need to know sort of the coding literacy a bit earlier. What's a safe environment that would not be a heavy cognitive overload that would get them attuned to this logic? And we talked about me using Swift Playground in the first unit to get them to understand well, what are functions, what are loops, so they can transition to their design and development. So that's more of a another pedagogical approach in which we as the researcher teachers are you know just not superficially talking about this stuff but we are actively operating in this space of how we can think about um, applications such as with playgrounds in our everyday you know teaching spaces yeah I mean I'd add to that too I think it's just it's a really exciting time to be in technology and and be in the uh, English language arts classroom I mean certainly the digital humanities is important but I think I think it's really giving us new ways to think about the way that we teach and think about uh, mm -hmm. a variety of uh, text and what text is and um, I, I just I, it's it's a new part of the conversation and I think uh, if you talk to people that they're really reluctant to, to embrace this different approach because it's, it's really it's, it's potentially transformative, particularly when you're thinking about bringing these computer science ideas into an English language classroom. They seem so disparate, yet uh, in reality, I think, as we, as we explore them, they're actually like very, very closely linked to each other. So um, right. I'm, I'm right. really looking forward to, to continually to explore the ways that these, that these areas are related and also... Uh, finding kind of new ways to teach our students and differentiate it as well. I mean, I think, you know, Steve Jobs' approach was always like really individualizing the, the instruction, individualizing the learning for that particular student. And this is just another another tool that we as teachers can have in our tool belt to, to really um, make learning um, that much, have that resonate way more with the students in, meaning, in meaningful ways too. Really interesting what you had said, Dr. Cook, about how it's a, a lightweight uh, interface that allows just people the the syntax and the language to get out of the way so people can just learn because my students um, come from 20 different homeschools and they range from anywhere from we have an Amish district that graduates 12 kids to some rural suburban districts and they have a variety of experiences and we had just we've just switched to intro into app development with Swift on the Mac this semester and last semester they we did uh, so the Swift Playgrounds app and learn to code one and two. And they said to me, they're like, oh, we're really programming now because we're, we're on our Macs and we're typing. And I'm like, oh, we weren't learning computer science. And that's the other thing, really, we're teaching computer science. We're not just teaching coding. 
And I said, we, we weren't teaching, were you, you weren't learning computer science? Oh, not like this. I said, oh, really? And then we got into the functions lessons and we were doing the other things. I'm like, oh, where'd you learn that stuff about functions? Because we were able to go right through that playground very quickly. And uh, well, where'd you learn that? Well, last semester we learned it in the Swift Playgrounds app. Oh, so we really were learning that computer science. So it is really, uh, you, you hit it right on the head. It's a perfect way to learn a new language without the overhead and of something like Xcode. I, re I refer to it a little bit as like uh, with my kids, when I want them to eat more vegetables, I put them into their macaroni and cheese. So I refer to it as hiding, hiding the vegetables in the macaroni and cheese. Swift play. I'm not sure Apple would want to use that for their. Uh... <laughs> no, that's like the whole candy bait. <laughs> yeah. Uh, discourse. <laughs> right. Hey, Swift yeah. playgrounds. It's like macaroni and cheese. <laughs> Where you put your vegetables. Huh? I'm not sure they're going to, want to use that, but it's that's an interesting approach. If anybody at Apple's listening right now, you know, Dr. Jordan Sugar, he thought of it first. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And one more thing in regards to the implications of the research, um, where I think we talked about this, um, the, the idea of translation, which is definitely a literacy sort of concept and sort of contention we deal with, right? How do we transfer... Um, knowledge from one space to another space, which are clear implications of, you know, development. And so what we really want to do in our next iteration of this research is uh, spend a, a bit more intimate time framing our transfer activity. So in this particular research, we did, you know, transfer from Swiss Playground to a material, you know, uh, type of game or activity we had them do. So now we want to add more emphasis and, and more critical thinking on how we can develop this transfer activity that will show us and give us a bit more data in our research. So be a bit more intentional in our transfer activity. Am I right about that, Jordan? Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, we've gotten some some response in that in that space, but um, and and I, I'd like to emphasize too that for us it was really exploratory early on. Um, I think a lot of what we do is exploratory. It is emerging, um, and I'd like to think here at Westchester University that we're that we're really on the on the front edge of looking at these early trends uh, before it happens. And I think this is a, just like a great example. And I think like most things, like now that we are where we are, we we have way more questions than we have answers. Um, and, and while it appears as though we may know some things, it's, it's, uh, it's like I said before, it's just an exciting time. And I think we're, we're, we are um, excited and enthused about the potential and, and looking forward to really, really exploring this um, in more depth. What have your students and, I guess, teacher candidates, what have they shared with you regarding learning and or teaching computer science and coding? With regards to learning, uh, it's hard. It's time consuming and it's hard, and, you know, to, to see my students struggle through the Swift Playgrounds activities and then that transfer task, it got really quiet, Brian, in that classroom, you know, it really focused. It went from, you know, easy breezy, everybody chatting, you know, to everybody just being focused and buttoned down and just, you know, into the screen, like concentrating, uh, don't talk to me. So that was a that was a uh, something that stood out for me. And then when we asked them, you know, uh, would you want to teach coding? Uh, how you know how difficult is that? Uh, some of them loved it. I mean, some of them were into it. They were excited about it. And others found it just really, really hard and not something they want to go back to. And I think it's helping our case a little bit. Um, 
where I teach a course, a reading practicum course, and um, I have students out in the field where they're all morning teaching language arts in the classrooms. And within the last year to two years, my students are being asked to teach coding as part of that language arts curriculum. And they're finding that they're unprepared and they're asking for help. So I think that as we see more and more schools move towards um, not only teaching coding, but maybe incorporating it in within the language arts curriculum, our students are going to see a necessity whether it's hard or not for them to learn. They need to learn because they're going to be responsible for doing this. All right, Dr. Sugar, then as an expert in ELA, would you recommend that it become part of the curriculum for ELA or even as a foreign language option for schools? From my experience, I think that it will be... I like the idea of teaching it within English language arts because if you look at code, you need to be able to comprehend code, right? The different codes mean different things. You need to know what they mean in order to use them. You need to be able to decode or you know understand the words that um, you see so that you are able to make sense of them, use them, spell them correctly. Um, and then you need to be able to do this with some type of fluency. If you're going to write a code, you don't want it to take you weeks to write a very simple code. You need to be pretty fluent and um, be able to automatically recall a lot of these codes and then look at the code you've created and comprehend it in a way that will allow you to understand, you know, where there's a problem or what needs to be fixed or why is it not working. And so I just from my own experience, I think it's going to be easier if we start to map on to students have already learned how to do all these things with a language already. And if we look at coding as a language and instead asking them to learn something completely new and instead ask them to transfer what they know about decoding, automaticity, and um, comprehension in English and transfer that to whichever code they're learning, I think it's going to be an easier transition. So a quick follow-up then. Have you looked at any other language other than Swift? Have you had any experience with Java or JavaScript or Objective-C or any other language? I myself am familiar with um, several of those, and I code in HTML, but I from what I've seen so far, um, I haven't found a language yet that wouldn't transfer to a literacy-based background. But that doesn't mean one doesn't exist. I haven't used all languages. Why I ask is I have found Swift to be the most expressive, meaning that it's the most easy to read and most English-like. Mm -hmm. And then I, I just wondered if, if you find Swift easier to incorporate and teach those concepts versus some other language just because it's much more compact and there's not as much syntax and cruft because it's a newer language. Right. And I think that I'll use HTML as an example. So a lot of folks who can't, um, don't have experience reading and writing HTML look at it and it looks like gibberish to them. But if you think about it and break it down as a language, thinking about some of the syntax pieces as um, grammar or punctuation that we might use in English and mapping some of that, I certainly think it's much closer to an alphabetic language than a character type of language. So I first started this research uh, when I first arrived here at Westchester University um, out of my PhD program at Winsteller Polytech Institute. And so um, it was a natural transition to start thinking about how we can create um, a learning environment that can foster uh, computational thinking skills. 
So um, this became like a natural task for me in my pedagogy here at Westchester in teaching in the English department, teaching coding literacy, but also um, for me, uh, design thinking. And so this research had helped me develop the, helped develop the game design and development program where I have criminal justice majors, um, education majors, uh, English majors, some um, computer science majors. But how I approach it, especially thinking about this transfer task and this particular research, is how can we um, help them transfer and translate these very uh, computer science terms in this more open interdisciplinary space. So one way I do that, and I think I was talking about this earlier, thinking about game design as this situated learning um, experience for them. So where terms and ideas such as abstraction, decomposition, etc., wouldn't be in this sort of superficial experience, but it's more meaningful. So for example, what if we were to have the students make a game, in which I do. So my class students develop games for change. From that, they're sort of using their procedural literacy to think about you know, the claims in this world and what claims they want to make about a situation and how they can translate and integrate that within a game. And we know that games are these sort of dynamic systems. So how do you create a dynamic system that speaks back to a user or a player. In that sense, in thinking about, well, how can we further teach learning or teaching computer science and coding in that? Well, how do we think about these situations and how can we make it more of a, a meaningful learning situation for them where they're translating their thoughts and their experiences in the game that then turns back and is speaking to a user and player? Uh, you must have a very interesting, some very interesting classes. I do. I really look forward to going to class um, <laughs> and teach. And I spend hours in, in terms of like using different resources to, to teach these things. I, I can honestly say today that I enjoy my teaching, all of my classes from not just the game design and development class, but also in my I teach a youth empowerment series class for the Yes Minor here where students have to go out into the field and work for nonprofits. So in that same class, I take the same sort of research logic, right? So I teach them uh, film production, audio production, uh, web development, and then games development and show that across these different media, we have to think about coding and translation. Um, so it's not just sort of enclosed thinking or paradigm. It's truly intrinsic to everything we do. Yeah, I know this sounds all warm and fuzzy, but <laughs> I am a true advocate of, of coding, this coding movement. Me too even though it's completely self-serving. So what suggestions would you, uh, as learned individuals from the university standpoint, have for any teacher, current or pre-service, or any school district that is considering incorporating to teach coding or programming with SWIFT? Well, I'd like to actually reword that question in a way and maybe back up and say that I think in teacher education programs, I think we need to look at how we teach coding to teachers and then how that would then play out in our k-12 schools as well so i think as teacher educators we need to be looking at coding and do we offer classes or units or right now we're, we're, we're looking over maybe developing a minor in coding for our teacher candidates oh that'd be cool so we need to look at what what we're doing in teacher education as well 
and help our partners, our K-12 partners, also look at, you know, where does coding fit in their curriculum as well. My big suggestion would really come to the school districts. Um, one of the things I'm seeing is that school districts are pushing out coding movements. I know our local districts have moved to Hour of Code, and we're teaching that, but we're not supporting it with the training that teachers need to be able to teach this. So it becomes a task where students in the classroom who have picked it up quick are being held responsible for teaching their classmates how to teach. And so I think, like anything else, especially with technology, we love to kind of hop on the bandwagon and get um, involved, which is great. Like, I want to see schools moving forward. But I also think that um, we really need to invest in the time and the resources it's going to take to be able to do this well. But it, that's so true, right? What Heather said, I mean, we, we, we've seen this played out for years where we don't give teachers maybe the, the, the time and the professional learning opportunities to understand how this new initiative, whether that's a, you know, it, it, it's coding or some other initiative, uh, we need to, we need to help our teachers with the time and the resources that they need uh, to, to support that and support it well. Yeah. As a practitioner in the field, I can say in most of the other teachers I know are teaching this, many of us were self-taught. You know, it was not because our school district asked or um, it was because of something we had done pre previously. I had learned to develop apps in Objective-C, so I had to teach it myself just because that was a goal that I had. You know, there are a couple that I know, Daniel Budd in Australia was a software engineer that became a teacher. Fraser Spears in Scotland was a software engineer that became a teacher. But there are more I think teachers who are being asked to do this than software engineers coming into the field uh, to teach. So, yeah, I, professional development would be great <laughs> for us, but would be great for a lot of things. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, getting back to, you know, Larry's conversation, Larry Reese's conversation that you had last week, Brian, you know, him getting into that and himself teaching, right, himself as well. But he has that passion, right? He has that drive to do it. Uh, if we're looking at it to be a really comprehensive cross-curricular thing, how do we support that and not just be one or two champions in a school or in a school district? How do we make it uh, be, be something that's taught across the curriculum uh, at all grade levels? Well, when you figure that out, I'm sure Apple will be interested to hear your thoughts. I think we'd all be interested, right? I think, that's, I think that's why we have these discussions. I think that's why we do the research that we're doing. Uh, we see the, the need for this. We see the importance of it. Uh, we need to keep asking these critical questions and having, you know, uh, intellectual conversations around that. How do we best support learners? How do we best support teachers? So I heard recently that Westchester University will be implementing an iPad one-to-one -one initiative deployment in the College of Education and Social Work. Why don't you go ahead and tell us about that? Because that's really exciting. We have in Ohio, Ohio State is starting that for all freshmen next year. But I, I find that really exciting. And I wish my alma mater, Kent State, would do the same. So it's been a, a, a lot of planning, Brian. But we're working right now to roll out uh, an iPad for every faculty member in our College of Education initially. And we'll move into social work next. And then to roll that out to all students. Uh, but the... The goal here really, you know, it's not an iPad initiative per se. It's like, how can we get these devices into the hands of our students 
so that they can you know learn everywhere and how can we get them into the hands of our faculty so that they can teach everywhere we've made a lot of changes to our learning spaces to our classrooms and now i think those those spaces work well for us to bring in some technology and specifically you know some mobile technology and move our faculty from the front of the room to more you know the center of the room or the side so giving them some mobility in the classroom and then for them to have that device outside of the classroom as well to keep in touch with you know their other uh, faculty colleagues or Westchester staff and uh, eventually all the students. So we're excited about it. A lot of moving pieces, and uh, we're we're hoping to uh, get that kicked off the right way in uh, just over two weeks. We're going to be rolling that out. And um, one thing we hear repeatedly from principals and in the literacy department when we meet with local principals, one of the things they say is that they are looking for our students to come in with the technology that they don't even know exists yet. So they want us to be teaching our students things that aren't being used in the schools, but that they, those students could become leaders once they're hired for a position, which puts us in a tricky position. In the literacy department, we've been one-to-one -one with iPads in our field course for years, maybe four or five years. It's really made a difference. Our students are creating iBooks to supplement materials. So if they're teaching first grade, a lot of times they're not books at an appropriate reading level for our students on certain topics like soil. Um, and so the students will create their own book to substitute so that the kids can practice reading. The interactive pieces of the books help. And we also are doing things like having them video and make movies of themselves teaching. When I was student teaching, we didn't do any of that until, you know, the second to last lesson before you graduated, then you saw yourself teach. Well, we're able to fix a lot of the kind of quirks, teaching quirks that students have really early before they even get to student teaching because they're seeing themselves teach every lesson and they're able to make changes on the spot. Wow, that's really powerful. That might have been very helpful for me as a student. Yes, me too. <laughs> So your study sounds really interesting. I'd like to take a look at it. Where can people find you, your study, and your work online? So the study itself, we're working to get it published right now. We've presented at a few uh, local, state, national, and international conferences. And uh, we're working to have that you know, officially published out in a, a, a journal. So that will be coming soon. Uh, if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter, at Chris Penny. And once that does get published, I'll be sure to announce that on Twitter. This year for NCTE, uh, we presented perhaps one of the only coding uh, title programs in all of the hundreds of other programs that were there at NCTE. Um, but we have applied again for NCTE uh, 2018, 19, sorry, 2019. And um, hopefully you will catch us there. Um, more than likely. I'm pretty confident because um, this research is very important. So you can catch us at NCTE, which will be held in Houston, Texas this year. You can catch me, uh, Dr. Laquana Cook, at laquanacook.com, L-A-Q-U-A-N-A-C-O-O-K-E.com, and I'll have all of my handles there. It's probably easiest to access um, me, Heather Sugar, at um, on Twitter at hsugar, S-C-H-S-C-H, U-G-A-R. 
You can find me um, on Twitter at at jsugar, J-S-C-H-U-G-A-R. Thank you so much for spending some time uh, sharing what you found in your research and and talking about uh, what your passionate and expertise is. I really appreciate you giving me the time. If you'd like to find the show notes for today's episode, you can find them at swiftteacher.org slash podcast. I will have links to things they shared with me in there and you can find them. So Dr. Penny, Dr. Sugar, Dr. Cook, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Time to get Swifty. 